0: We're going to be in Habakkuk uh, 1, verses 5 through 11 tonight. We started that last week. In fact, uh, let's just begin by by reading our, our passage. Habakkuk 1, beginning with verse 5 and down through verse 11. Look among the nations, observe, be astonished, wonder, because I am doing something in your days you would not believe if you were told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that fierce and impetuous people who march throughout the earth to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. They are dreaded and feared. Their justice and authority originate with themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards and keener than wolves in the evening. Their horsemen come galloping. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swooping down to devour all of them come for violence their horde of faces moves forward they collect captives like sand they mock at kings and rulers are a laughing matter to them they laugh at every fortress and heap up rubble to capture it then they will sweep through like the wind and pass on but they will be held guilty they whose strength is their god lord help us as we look at this passage tonight uh, hopefully finish looking at it, Lord, uh, give me the right words to say and uh, help help us to be um, enlightened and uh, even uh, if perhaps we might be encouraged, uh, Lord, built up uh, by what we learn together tonight. In your name we pray, amen. And just uh, by way of review, and I, I hope this doesn't become tedious, I, I, I'm a firm believer in repetition and, and repetition upon repetition sort of breeds understanding I think and so each week I won't be I promise when we're finally get to chapter 3 some uh, months from now um, I won't be starting with chapter 1 every time and working all the way through the book but I think some repetition is is really helpful uh, just to keep some things in our mind fresh remember back when we covered verses 1 through 4 essentially that boiled down to Habakkuk had uh, two problems with with God essentially. He had a problem with God's timing. Remember how he prayed how long in verse two? And he had a problem with God's tolerance or his apparent tolerance with sin. Do you remember, hopefully you remember this. This isn't, unless you weren't here, this isn't necessarily new. But those were his problems. And, and we, we spent a lot of time and, and we saw how those were really the result of right understanding of who Yahweh was those weren't wrong things that he was in fact he's, we see that we've covered that he's never rebuked for what he said he doesn't he isn't chastised by Yahweh for his questions and then we had these three lessons that we drew out from those first four verses that that Habakkuk was, was persistently calling on Yahweh for help he had been doing it for some time he took his problems to the right place that was one lesson we learned and also that God's delays are purposeful and they're designed to lead people to repentance and then finally, and, and this is again, we're gonna hopefully it won't it won't get old to us, sort of like beating a dead horse away. But our era, just like Habakkuk's era, and every era, is under God's control, and that really is probably the big lesson, the biggest lesson we need to we need to learn. And then we began last week to covering these these verses five through eleven, which make up Yahweh's unexpected answer to Habakkuk's prayer. And, and you recall if you were here last week. Um, that I think we would be agreed this is not the answer we would expect. I mean, obviously it is because we've read through it a few times now. Hopefully you've read through it on your own so you know what answer is coming. But if you didn't know, this isn't what we would expect Yahweh to say to him. This is not the answer I believe that Habakkuk hoped for. More than likely, he hoped for what we would expect, which is Yahweh to come in and just wipe out the wicked people that were in Judah. But we'll see, and we have seen a little bit that this answer is not quite that. In fact, he begins, as we talked last week, with these four imperatives, and, and there was something important that we we pointed out about these imperatives, these commands here in verse five, and that is that they're plural. They're not addressed just to Habakkuk; they're in the plural. So that means there's there's more in view than just than just Habakkuk in these answers. Um, the nation of Judah. Is clearly in view. The four commands were look, observe, be astonished, and wonder. Sometimes you you look at I, maybe you don't, but I look at those and I think it almost sounds um, redundant. Uh, look, observe, right, same thing. But but we, we spend we're not going to go over all that again. I promise. Don't pull out your pillows. We're not going to go over all that again. But they each one sharpens the other. When you have two verbs that are similar in Hebrew. The one really sort of sharpens the other the idea is look and then study the international horizon look outside of judah habakkuk was looking very narrowly right he was navel gazing he was all the problems were right here in judah and, and Yahweh say, no no look look you may not see me at work here but look on the horizon don't just look but study and see look out on the international horizon because i'm doing something i'm doing something and then this, be astonished and wonder. Remember we said that that, that has the idea of, of to be horrified or to be frozen in fear by what it is that you see. So he tells Habakkuk and really the nation of Judah, look out there and what you see should should horrify you. It should, it should make you freeze in fear. <clears throat> and we talked about why. why. Why are these imperatives necessary? Because Yahweh is doing something in his day. You see that at the end of verse 5. And secondly, because the work that he's doing is unbelievable. We see that also verse 5. says, you would not believe it if you were told. And, And it's unbelievable, first of all, because the nature of Yahweh's chosen instrument, these people, they're not yet well known, the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, and also because of what they are, which we'll be talking about, finishing up talking about tonight. But also it's unbelievable because of the nature of the judgment. I mean, without a doubt, a back wish for the, the wicked to be purged from the nation. But instead, what Judah is facing is complete devastation. Remember, we, we talked about how the, the Chaldeans weren't going to come in and say, which one of you are followers of Yahweh? Are you followers of Yahweh? Okay, you're good. You're not. I'm going to kill you. We're going to enslave you. And we know that wasn't the case because one of the first people that were carried away later were, was Daniel. He was a righteous, he was a righteous man, and he was, he was carted away to Babylon. So the righteous and the wicked were both going to suffer. And and you can imagine uh, as we as Habakkuk, this is revealed to Habakkuk, this caused him quite a bit of consternation. In fact, you'll, you'll, we'll see that when we get to verse 12 and following. So verses 6 to 11, Yahweh begins to describe his tool of judgment, the Chaldeans. He identifies who they are. Verse 6a, remember Chaldeans equals Babylonians, right? And I'll try to be consistent and say Babylonians, but I can't promise that. Um, So he reveals who they are, and then he he launches into a description of their character. And that's where we, we began, sort of left off last week. We talked about this first description of their character as fierce and impetuous, they act rashly. They're, 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 the idea. There's the idea there with the impetu- impetuosity. Is that a word? With their impetuousness, um, hastening or speed, they're acting without thinking. And it. Con- this, by the way, this. And I pointed this out last week. This contrasts really neatly with Habakkuk's prayer of how long. There's this whole idea of speed right off the right off the bat when Habakkuk when Yahweh answers Habakkuk's questions so they're fierce they're bitter literally that word was I had the idea of us used in samuel a bear robbed of its whelps they're mad they've got a chip on their shoulder they're angry and they're coming and they're coming fast and they're not cal- they're they're not calculated they're just doing right so they're bitter and they're discontented they're acting without thinking and then we saw that they're on the move That it's literally they march throughout the earth they walk through the breadth of the land that could be uh translated and it's translated march here because of the military nature of the context. And, and I, I pointed this out, and I don't know if you recall, because I can't necessarily remember what I heard last week either, but uh, that, that the root word used there is used on several occasions to refer to Israel's inheritance, this, this breadth of the earth, the breadth of the land. And I don't think that's unintentional, especially as we see this next description. This is where we pick, off, this is, pick up, this is new material not from last week. The next description is they are dispossessors or thieves. We see that in at the end of verse six. To seize dwelling places which are not theirs, literally to take possession of dwelling places which are not theirs. Tell me if you if you hear the, the uh, similarity in content, I want to read you just uh, three verses from Deuteronomy 6. Deuteronomy 6, verses 10 through 12, mainly verse 10. Then it shall come about when the Lord your God brings you into the land which you swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you great and splendid cities which you did not build, and houses full of good things which you did not fill, and hewn cisterns which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant, and you eaten are satisfied, then watch yourself that you do not forget the Lord who brought you from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. You guys hear the similarity and ideas there? He says of the, of the Babylonians, they're coming to seize dwelling places not theirs. Well, what did Israel do? They seized dwelling places not theirs. They took cities which were not theirs and houses full of things that they didn't fill, cisterns they didn't dig, vineyards and olive trees that they didn't plant. Do you, do you, do you, he, do you, can you imagine? The Israelites were well-versed in in. Old Testament. I mean, they they knew they knew their their Torah. All right? They knew what God had said in Deuteronomy. Can you imagine how this must have just been like shards in Habakkuk's ears when he heard these words? This being said of the enemies of Judah, the Babylonians who are coming. Yahweh's using similar language of what they're going to do to what he did for the nation of of Israel. The the, the word here, by the way, it's a very significant word to the Israelites, this this idea of uh, inheriting, taking possession of, dispossessing others who have something. It links Yahweh's promise to the patriarchs with the land as a divine gift. We see that in the verse of Deuteronomy ten eleven, 11. Uh, another place in Deuteronomy 1, 8, he says, See, I have placed the land before you. Go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And then Joshua twenty one forty three, same word, and this is used re- repeatedly to link Yahweh's promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to the, to the promised land of Canaan. It also shows this word is used to show that Israel possesses what Yahweh gives, and they did possess it. But there is a distinction here. Unlike uh, the Israelites, the Babylonians are taking something which wasn't given to them. Right? Yahweh owns everything, and Yahweh gave that land to his people, the Israelites the Babylonians are no inheritors of Yahweh's goodness they're thieves, they're dispossessors in any case this would have been so hard for Habakkuk to hear and then you can, we'll see as we get further that Habakkuk's told to write this prophecy down so everybody's going to be reading it can you imagine how this would have hit, especially the ears of the righteous in Judah Yahweh's use of these two phrases, clearly it's intentional I mean, every word is intentional. That's no surprise to us. But they, these words would have been so harsh to Habakkuk's ears and to the ears of those who were going to read his prophecy. They were words and ideas that were just totally bound up with Israel's identity. And Yahweh's taking those same words, and he's turning them around on his covenant people. Because of their persistent rebellion, he's taking the same words he used as he promised, made covenant with them and promised them. He's turning them around and using them against his covenant people just as they marched through the breadth of the land and took possession of God's inheritance Yahweh's inheritance for them the Babylonians are going to march through the land and dispossess the nation of Judah so we see their character is fierce and impetuous they're on the move they're thieves or dispossessors next we see in verse 7 they are awe-inspiring says here they are dreaded and feared. That word dreaded is, is one of these words that's used very rarely in the Old Testament. It's only used here and two times in the Song of Solomon. And then in that case, it's it's used metaphorically. But in each in each case it's used in a military context, and it has the idea of visible astonishment. And the second half of this little coupling here, this dreaded and feared. Is, is used a few different ways. It, it, it's a uh, terror inspired by, in, in Deuteronomy 8, a, a wilderness full of snakes, scorpions, and drought. It says in Deuteronomy 8.15, he led you through the great and terrible wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water. It's also used to describe the works of Yahweh. In Exodus 34, Yahweh says, of what he's going to do it's a fearful thing that I'm going to perform with you. Same Same word there. Is also used when when uh, there was direct con- contact with Yahweh. So this is this is terror inspired by an object. So they are dreaded. They're they're they are dreaded in fear. They strike fear in the heart to the point of creating visible astonishment. Next, they are self-sufficient and autonomous. And we see that and. 7b it says their justice and their authority originate with themselves literally translated from them justice and authority go out meaning essentially they're a law and an authority unto themselves the uh you may hate to admit it but the niv and the holman really nail this translation here niv says they are a law to themselves and promote their own honor the holman says their views of justice and sovereignty stem from themselves. O. Well, Palmer Robertson describes, describes them this way, the almighty God who is jealous that he alone be acknowledged as God shall raise up a nation whose stated policy builds on the promise, premise that it is totally self-determining. This nation shall not look to God for a criterion for righteousness, it shall determine its own standard of truth. This is not in my notes, but did that just make you think of a particular country as I read that? A nation whose stated policy builds on a premise that it is totally self-determining, lifting itself up by its own bootstraps. The American dream, self-determination. This is not a compliment, by the way, on Yahweh's part. He's not, he's not a... a giving approval to this characteristic of Babylon justice and originate and goes out tie in very nicely if you remember back to verse 4 when he says um, the law is ignored justice is never upheld and then at the end of that verse when justice does come out how does it come out twisted or perverted remember there's no justice so this ties again you see this tying from Habakkuk's prayer his, his pleading to Yahweh's answer This, by the way, this characteristic of this nation is borne out many years later in a speech by Nebuchadnezzar. You guys remember this? And and, uh, we talked about this, or we say we, Mark talked about it, in Daniel 4. Listen to these verses. This is just interesting to me. All this happened. This is uh, Daniel 4, verses 28 through 30. All this happened in Nebuchadnezzar the king. Twelve months later, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. The king reflected and said... Is this not Babylon the Great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? This is their whole, you see it, and then what happens? Remember, Yahweh strikes them down and turns them essentially into an animal. There's no law higher than the Babylonians. They are their own law. The justice is totally rooted in what they want and what they desire. And this, especially for a nation like Judah And especially for those who followed Yahweh Is what makes them dreaded and feared There's no restraint on their cruelty Yet, you know, if you read the Old Testament Israel, did they do some cruel things from our perspective? Absolutely, they always did those things At the the direct commission of Yahweh To do those things And they would to go sometimes very far And sometimes not as far but, the, but there was restraint. Yahweh, there's no restraint on the cruelty of the Babylonians. This is why they're to be dreaded and feared. They just do whatever they want to. They do whatever they please, whenever they please. Their only measure of justice is what they think is just. No outside source of justice. So what do you think these, what verses, what do verses 6 and 7 do to Habakkuk? And to those reading his prophecy, including us, it intensifies the threat of judgment, to be sure. But more importantly, it had to create in Habakkuk, and it should be creating in us as we read it, a gnawing sense that this, this answer from Yahweh is in no, in no way going to, from Habakkuk's limited perspective and ours, in no way is it going to resolve Habakkuk's initial cry for justice. Yahweh essentially just ratchets up the difficulty here for the prophet in this description. And then he goes further in the next three verses, 8 through 11, as he describes the weapons and the methods of the Babylonians. So we'll see that in verse 8, there we see their weapons begin to be described. First he says, their horses are swifter than leopards. I don't have a lot to say about that. That speaks for itself. I mean, leopards are very fast. Right? Their horses are fast. And then we have this this really neat description. They're keener than evening wolves. Keener is most often used in relation to sharpening of swords. And, and when you think about wolves hunting, when it says they're keener than evening wolves, when do wolves hunt generally? When are they active? At night, right? They're nocturnal hunters. And so this is he's saying of, of this weapon of the Babylon is these horses, that they're fast and they're, they're keener than wolves on the hunt. And a lot of times we think, you know, wolves are uh, essentially related to, to dogs and they have this, a keen sense of smell. But wolves are not, their, their sense of smell is not the only thing keen about them. They have an incredible sense of hearing and an incredible sense of sight. They are all around amazing hunters. So what does Habakkuk say here, or Yahweh say to Habakkuk of, of the Babylonians? They are swift and keen, these horses of Babylon. What does that mean for Judah? Their speed, Their, their uh, speed. the speed of these animals, these weapons of Babylon makes distance, no defense. Babylon was a good way well, he's away from Judah, right? They might have looked out there and thought, That's, they're a long ways off. That didn't matter distance was no defender, no source of defence for Judah. These horses of Babylon were swift and keen. And there's no escape from the leopard's agility and the wolf's keen senses on the hunt, just like there will be no escape from the Babylonians. What we see about their horsemen, it says they they, they come galloping, they come from a long distance, or they come from they come from afar. They are they are coming even though they're far away they're coming they're galloping they're running and their speed is going to make that distance seem very insignificant and then we have this really neat description here it says they fly like an eagle swooping down to devour i describe this as them being insatiable they're insatiable Then that word eagle there by the way <clears throat> can be translated either eagle or vulture, and, and depending on the context, is how you how you translate that. When it's related to speed, uh, generally it's soon it's, uh, to be eagle. But here, the idea is it's so much speed; it is what they're going to do when they get there, right? They're going to devour, and it's better actually better translated as vulture. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, that changes the whole picture because I picture eagle. I think of a pretty bald eagle, right? Majestic and soaring, I don't necessarily picture this animal. Um, and this is, you know, as close as we can, rec- uh, close as close we can get to what was probably referred to your vulture with a great hooked beak, uh, who feasts on carrion. And I thought, what's happening with uh, my? I thought those pictures sort of, sort of. Give us a different, a little bit of a different idea. It's not so much an eagle that's fast, but a a bird that eats carrion. So the horse and the horseman here, described as, as swift, keen, galloping, they're coming from a long distance, insatiable. Most likely these refer together to the weapon known as a chariot. And chariots if you if you are familiar with your old testament battles they strike fear they strike fear in the hearts of those who have to go against them they are an amazingly powerful weapon they're a game changer when when somebody comes with chariots in fact so much so that what what does yahweh say to the nation of israel about chariots they're not supposed to have them they begin to trust in their own chariots all these descriptions given in these couple of verses deal with the speed of the attack and the viciousness of the attack and again these, these just serve to further heighten the tension that Habakkuk would have felt as Yahweh was giving this this reply to his answer and, and now Yahweh deepens the potential despair of Habakkuk and those reading his prophecy even about us if we can put ourselves in Habakkuk's shoes when he describes the methods of their warfare in verses 9 through the first part of 11. First of all, he says they are united in violence. You see that in verse in verse nine. All of them come for violence. They have one intention. One intention, and that's violence. Do you guys remember the Hebrew word? We talked about this a while back. The Hebrew word for violence? Hamas. Yeah, remember that we quickly that makes an association in your mind. This is this is wickedness of all kinds, evil thoughts uncontrolled lust often making use of physical violence and brutality. It's really interesting. This is what Habakkuk had complained about, right? Didn't he he complain about this? I cry out to you what? Hamas. I cry out to you violence, back in verse 2. And what is Yahweh's answer? The Babylonians are coming, and what are they going to bring? More Hamas. They're bringing more violence. And, And it's not that they're just bringing violence. They are united, all of them, come for violence. There isn't one peaceful person among them. They are completely united in their intention to inflict violence upon the nation of Judah. See also they are united in purpose. And this is a th- this phrase here translated by the Nasby their horde of faces, their horde of faces moves forward, is a very difficult uh, phrase to translate, believe it or not. It, it looks simple. Uh, Holman translates it this way, their faces are set in determination. Uh, The Net Bible says, every face is determined. They are all moving in one direction. They're one mind, they're one thought, it's violence, and they're all moving together in this one purpose. J.J.M. Roberts, and I only say his name because I think it sounds really neat, J.J.M. Roberts. He's a, he's a commentator, and he says the first two lines of these verses indicate that every horse and rider is pressing forward for the kill. I mean, they're just of one mind, and they're they one thought. They are going for violence, and they're moving forward. There's no retreat in these people. They're moving forward, and they're moving forward for violence. We see also that they're greedy. Verse 9 see, they collect captives like sand again I can't help it I don't want to stretch this I don't want to stretch this too far and make something that appear here that's not here but as soon as you hear it's like sand We at least maybe you don't but I immediately think like sand which is on the seashore innumerable right this was Yahweh's promise to Abraham he was going to make a nation of him people that couldn't be counted like the sand on the sea do you think that that perhaps the Israelites the Judites, when they when they read this would have thought that same thing. They collect captives like sand. That's exactly how we were described by Yahweh, as sand. Well, what Yahweh's conveying here is that their captives that they collect are without number. They can't have enough. They're united in in violence, they're united in purpose, they're greedy. And then we see, they defy all authority. in verse 10, they mock at kings and rulers are a laughing matter to them. Effectively, really they defy God we know that God is the one who sets up kings Uh, we know that from again from Daniel that he is the one who changes times and epochs he removes kings and establishes kings so they defy God by defying every authority that's set up one commentary says this so no one else would dare do so they scoffed and made sport of the rulers of the people If the army did not tremble before kings, what could the common people do? You can see how all these things just further should inspire fear and those who who lay in their path. United in violence and purpose, they're greedy, they defy all authority, and they fear no defense. It says here in verse 10b that, that they laugh at every fortress and they heap up rubble to capture it. Now, until probably until um, last year, I would have had no clue. I mean, I, if I'd read a commentary, I would have figured it out. But I had no clue what it means here when he says they they heap up rubble to capture it. And maybe you're smarter than me. There's a good, really good chance that's the case. Um, but this was a siege technique that was used where they would pile up. They would pile up. Uh, I think the King James version translates it sand or dirt, but they would pile up rocks and rubble and dirt and whatever they could get. And, and use it to breach the walls of a city. I have a couple pictures here. I don't know if that's clear enough. You can sort of see these came from one of my instructors at, at seminary. You can see a, this is an artist's rendering of a siege ramp. And then there's. this is actually a, um, the siege ramp that the Romans used. This is much later now. I'm not saying this would is what the, the siege ramp that the Babylonians used would have looked like. This was done by the Romans when they captured Masada. Um, but you can see how they how they breached Masada they built they just kept piling up these this dirt and rocks and rubble until they just could drive their siege their siege uh, machines right up to the walls of the city and uh, breach the city. And so this is what Yahweh's predicting that <clears throat> look it doesn't matter how strong your fortress is, they're going to pile up rubble and they're going to capture it. And we see in verse 11, this final description of their methods of warfare. They do not stop. Then they will sweep through like the wind and pass on. Now, this is another exceedingly difficult uh, passage to translate, or phrase to translate, and I was talking with Rob last week. And to try to explain to you why I don't even, I mean, I spent quite a while reading this and, and eventually just have to trust that there are smarter people than you like the editors of the NASB who translated uh, correctly, but it's a, it's a very difficult construction with, with several different options. In fact, uh, the King James, uh, New King James says that uh, then he will, um, his spirit will change and he will, uh, rep- he will uh, transgress, I believe is what it says. Again, so you can see those are pretty, it's <clears throat> a pretty broad um, range there. <clears throat> between that and what the new american standard says the fact is the new american standard translation and tra- the other most modern translations follow this are they do the least adding to the hebrew text this is this is really a good translation i believe they will sweep through like the wind and pass on but even that doesn't necessarily help us right i mean i you so it almost makes it sound like it's no big deal they're going to be gone just hang on for a little bit and they'll be gone do you do you guys with me it almost sounds like it could mean that I don't believe that's what's intended again their their fierceness and their impetuousness uh and their speed it all you have to sort of carry it all together. fact right? we know from history that after they have their way with Judah, they pass through and do battle with Egypt. we know what happens after that. they come back right and they there's multiple deportations they're not done with Judah. Uh, so I, really the idea here is that, that, that the impetuousness, the fact that they just, they're just they not just going to stop with Judah. They're going to keep going through, and that's what they do. And they also come back. There, there can be the idea uh, there with the verb used with wind of, of, of something sweeping through, gathering strength, and sweeping through again. I can't say for sure that's what's intended here, but we know historically that's what happened, uh, that the Babylonians swept in on several occasions to take more and more of the people of Judah, the best and the brightest, away in captivity. So what's the picture that Yahweh's painted here so far? It really is a colorful, horrible picture of this coming judgment, really the coming tool of his judgment. However, and I find this very interesting, He, he reminds Habakkuk, of his holiness and and, and also reminds him that the Babylonians are not going to escape punishment for all the wickedness that they're going to perpetrate. In the final words of his answer here in verse 11 uh, to Habakkuk, Yahweh provides, I, I believe it's a measure of comfort when he says these words, but there's our conjunction, one of those buts in the Bible, they will be held guilty, they whose strength is their God. They're going to it's almost a bit, listen, I, the only way I can think of this is he has poured a lot on onto, onto Habakkuk. Yahweh has poured a lot out onto him here. This is there's not one bit of good news in any of this. This is all hard. And he, he, and he wants to remind Habakkuk and maybe um, we, we we see he has a clear sense of justice. This is what causes his, him to cry out to Yahweh repeatedly to begin with. And it's as if Yahweh is almost answering his objection to this in a way before he can voice it by saying that, listen, they're not going to get away with it. I'm holy. I can't tolerate sin. I'm using them for now, but I will judge them. And there, there, we talked last week about their rapid rise to power. Do you remember that, how, how amazing it was in the course of just 20-something years? They went from virtually nothings to just the absolute ruler of the known world. Their decline was just as rapid. And it bears out Yahweh's prediction here, his statement here that they're going to be held guilty. But by 539 BC, roughly 13 years or, or so after, uh, they their became very powerful. They're, they're overcome by Cyrus of Persia. So Yahweh does hold guilty those who commit Trespasses and transgressions, like the Babylonians, even though they're used as his tool of judgment. So, what do we do? Um, as a phrase goes, when the when the wheels start to come off, and that's what's happened for Habakkuk here. I mean, he began where he should have. We saw that in verse verses one through four. He began by bringing his problems to Yahweh. But Yahweh's response is not what Habakkuk expected. It, it, it isn't. I can't believe it's what any of us would expect until we had read it. In fact, the, the response seems possible or capable of only creating more difficulties. Frankly, from my perspective, from a human perspective, the answer stinks. It's not good. I have to be honest. When I think about you know, Habakkuk got this answer from Yahweh, I don't know if I want more faith and more trust badly enough, this bad, to go through this. I don't know that I could handle an answer if it came back this bad. Yahweh's asked this question from a, really from a place of faith in Yahweh and, and belief and trust. He is who he says he is. He gets this answer. But what is he to do at, at this point with this answer? What, what's, what can he do? He really, as I see it, he has two choices here. He can deny Yahweh and just say, you know what, Um, this isn't what I signed up for. Um, This isn't the Yahweh I, I serve. Or he can continue in the truth of what he knows about the Lord, about Yahweh. And this is true for us tonight. When, when difficulty gets piled on top of difficulty, when, when we, we have an ex- extraordinarily difficult circumstance and we pray to Yahweh, we pray to God for help, and he only seems to make it harder, when we have pain, physical pain upon physical pain, financial burden stacked on top of f- financial burden, what are we going to do? It's, it's very easy for us in the middle of, of difficult situations Especially when the answer comes back something other than what we would hope for expect to forget that God's in control of every situation and that his designs are often very different from ours. You must remember that he doesn't think like we think. He doesn't plan like we plan. He isn't preoccupied with the trivial issues that, that seem to occupy our agenda. We, we have to remember this truth and I, I think I did just such a poor job of, of hammering this home that, that verse 6 is the, just the heart of this whole thing. When he says, I am raising up the Chaldeans, we have to remember that, that he is the one who's doing this. He is the one who's raising up the Chaldeans in this case, and he is the one who is proverbially raising up the Chaldeans in our lives. I mean, if this were happening to Habakkuk as, a, as some random event, just a chance event set in motion by the cosmos... If the difficulties that face us similarly were were just mere happenstance, it would be unbearable, wouldn't it? I couldn't I couldn't bear up under that. And so we, we really have to hang on this verse, on verse 6, that whatever God sends our way, whatever he will send, we have to remember that he is the one sending it. He is the one raising up the Chaldeans. He is the one bringing in the difficulty. And we have to remember it in conjunction with that, just like Habakkuk is going to come to understand that he is a faithful and loving God, even and especially in these difficult phases of life and these difficult and seemingly disastrous answers to prayer. Let's pray. Lord, I ask you would just uh, affect change in our lives as a result of what we studied tonight, uh, that you would you would help us uh, to trust you, especially when it's hard, Lord, especially when it seems like um, the answers we get are not not from your hand. We know they are. We know you are the one even who raises up uh, the Babylonians. You're even the one who sends the hard things. And you do that, Lord, to, to affect change in us. And so we ask you would help us to submit submit to you and submit to your loving And in your name we pray, amen.